Space has always been the stuff of dreams. For kids, it's the world of futuristic characters, great adventures, and epic battles of good and evil. For scientists, it's the great unknown. What's out there? Are there others like us? Could we one day travel through space like we currently travel around our world? And for a small group of others, it's all about money and power. How much money can be made? And how can we build an arsenal of space weapons that will guarantee our complete domination over the world? Those are the dreams of some people in our society, and they're working hard to turn those dreams into reality. This is the secret militarization of space, and this is Green Street. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Green Street. Patty and Doug Wood and our network of scientists, medical professionals, authors, engineers, and others, all here on Tuesday mornings to help you make some sense of what's going on and what you need to do to ensure that you and your family can live a safe, better, and healthier life in this increasingly complex and toxic world. A few weeks ago on this show, we spoke with a couple of experts about 5G technology in space, the constellation of satellites that will beam high-energy signals back and forth from Earth-based stations around the world. It's an idea fraught with serious issues, from the possibility of collisions to the human health risks from exposure to increasingly high levels of radiofrequency radiation. But those risks pale in comparison to those of another space race going on quietly without much public notice, the increasing militarization of space. Space-based supersonic weapons that could be deployed quickly, guided by computer-driven space-based 5G satellites capable of guiding a smart weapon directly to its target in seconds without any human involvement. What could possibly be wrong with that? Today on Green Street, we're really thrilled to welcome our longtime friend, journalist Carl Grossman, who's been on this story for many years and knows more about this than practically anyone outside the military. That's coming up in a few minutes here on Green Street, but first, here's Patty with the Green Street News. What do you got for us this morning? Three good articles. First one was written by Dino Grandoni. Uh, it is titled, EPA Dismisses Dozens of Key Science Advisors Picked Under Trump. Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Michael Reagan will purge more than 40 outside experts appointed under President Donald Trump from two key advisory panels, a move he says will help restore the role of science at the agency and reduce the heavy influence of industry over environmental regulations. The unusual decision will sweep away outside researchers picked under the previous administration whose expert advice helped the agency craft regulations related to air pollution, the oil and gas extraction method known as fracking, and other issues. Critics say that under Trump, membership of the two panels, the EPA Science Advisory Board and Clean Air Scientific Advisory Committee, tilted too heavily in favor of regulated industries and that their positions sometimes contradicted scientific consensus. The Biden administration said the move is one of several to reestablish scientific integrity across the federal government after what it characterizes as a concerted effort under the previous president to sideline or interfere with research on climate change, the novel coronavirus, and other issues. But former Republican administration officials accused the Biden team of hypocrisy, saying it is undermining rather than restoring confidence in the agency by kicking out those with contrary views. 
The advisory boards created by Congress are designed to provide federal policymakers with the best advice from experts from a range of backgrounds. Members typically serve three-year terms. Their recommendations, though not binding, carry weight inside the agency. Resetting these two scientific advisory committees will ensure the agency receives the best possible scientific insight to support our work to protect human health and the environment, Reagan said in a statement. Environmental advocates cheered the decision, saying that remaking the composition of the panels is necessary after the Trump administration illegally barred academics who received EPA grants from serving on them. The administration had argued that scientists who received research funding would not be impartial in their advice. But environmental and public health advocates, along with some former career officials within the agency, said the policy effectively elevated experts from industry while muzzling independent scientists. It's absolutely warranted Christopher Zarba, a retired EPA employee who directed that office that coordinates with scientific committees, said of the new and newly announced shakeup, lots and lots of the best people were excluded from being considered. This action is one of several steps Reagan says are necessary to rebuild the scientific integrity of the EPA and restore, importantly, staff morale. It comes as the White House launched a government-wide assessment of past political interference in science. Reagan recently, for instance, revived an EPA webpage on climate change that was deleted during Trump's first weeks in office. And in a memo to staff last week, he said the agency is reviewing policies that impeded science and is encouraging career employees to bring any items of concern to the attention of scientific integrity officials as they review Trump-era actions. When politics drives science rather than science informing policy, Reagan wrote to his staff, we are more likely to make policy choices that sacrifice the health of the most vulnerable among us. I am so excited that this is happening. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. This is really great. This is terrific. I mean, for him to make such, you know, bold moves just, you know, in the first month or so of, uh, of this new administration. I mean, just throw them all out and start again. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those agencies that we always talk about having the revolving door, right? It's yeah. always about people coming from industry into high positions in those agencies that are supposed to regulate those industries. Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. Good yeah. news. What else you got? Yeah. Okay. So another one, not such good news. Um, this is written by Catherine Borzak, and it is titled Biodegradable Drinking Straws Contained PFAS. As consumers turn to alternatives to single-use plastic, drinking straws made of plant-based materials like paper are coming into wider use, and many are marketed as biodegradable and even compostable. But an analysis of drinking straws available in the U.S. detected 21 per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, called forever chemicals for their extreme resistance to environmental breakdown in 36 out of 38 brands of plant-based straws that were tested. University of Florida toxicologist John Bowden was fascinated by the durability of today's paper straws compared with the older ones that would break down quickly in a drink, and he wanted to know whether the new straw's water resistance might come from PFAS. So he and his colleagues tested them, as well as plant-based straws made out of materials including polylactic acid, rice flour, and reeds. They extracted PFAS from the straws with methanol and measured PFAS levels in the extracts. This finding signifies either ongoing use or contamination that continues decades after use has ended. 
This finding signifies either ongoing use or contamination that continues decades after use has ended, David Andrews of the Environmental Working Group, an advocacy organization, writes in an email. Drinking straws and food packaging, in which Andrews and others have detected the substances, are textbook examples of non-essential uses of PFAS. Bowden's team tested a straw with high levels of the PFAS to determine whether the substances would leach out of the straws into water at temperatures typical of beverages and landfills. About two-thirds of extractable PFAS leached out at all temperatures tested. Bowden says this means that sipping your drink through a plant-based straw is a potential route of PFAS exposure. Small exposures add up. PFAS break down very slowly in the body. This article is from the Can't Win Department. Good Lord. So you're trying to do the right thing. You're trying to use a straw that's, that's, you know, that's biodegradable, that won't stay in the environment forever, and instead you get a direct delivery of PFAS right into your body. Directly. Mm-hmm. Holy this was, and it's interesting that this, this article was actually published in Chemical and Engineering News, mm-hmm. copyrighted by the American Chemical Society. Hmm. Interesting. So, 36 out of 38. You know, they tested 38, and 36 of them had PFAS. Uh-huh. Well, and, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. I wondered about that myself. You see these, you know, these, quote, paper straws, unquote. And, I was so excited about that. And they don't clog up. Remember when we were kids, you'd oh, get yeah. a paper straw, and, it, you know, pretty soon it would start to crinkle at the bottom and clog up, and you'd have crinkle to... Crinkle at the bottom and get all yeah. disgusting at the top from yeah. sucking on it? Yeah. Yeah. No, not anymore, because it's got PFAS, and so, Wow. So you're actually drinking it. Okay. Okay. What else? Last one. Interesting one. This is printed in the, um, I guess, in a newsletter of PEER, which is Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. And it is written by Dave Rook, and it is called National Parks Screwing Up Cell Tower Permits. The National Park Service does not know how many cell towers have been erected in park units, but acknowledges that of the ones it knows about, more than a third have expired or lapsing permits or never had a permit at all. In a letter to National Park Service's parent agency, Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, is asking that the post-inauguration moratorium on new permits be extended for park cell tower decisions to sort out the mess. In July 2019, in response to a peer complaint, Interior's Office of Inspector General issued a report finding widespread noncompliance with legal requirements for issuing commercial rights-of-way for cell towers erected by the telecom companies on parklands. National Park Service admitted that it had no accurate inventory of these facilities. The inventory does not include at least 20 approved towers, eight or more of which have been erected in locations ranging from Bryce Canyon to Grand Teton to Sequoia National Parks. Of the 109 towers listed, National Park Service concedes that 15 have no valid permit at all, while 19 operate under permits that have expired. Another 19 towers have permits that have recently lapsed or soon will. And the National Park Service has not removed any of the non-compliant towers or secured cost recovery owing from telecom companies for past or ongoing market-based permit fees. Quote, How can the National Park Service consider itself a responsible custodian when it has no idea what commercial operations exist on parklands or whether these corporations are paying their fair share, asked Peer Executive Director Tim Whitehouse. We hope that the Biden administration will clean house in the Park Service headquarters and hold managers accountable for their negligence. 
After inauguration, the Biden-led Interior Department imposed a moratorium on the issuance of new rights-of-way easements and related permits for 60 days. Pierre is asking Interior to extend that moratorium for NPS cellular permits for another 60 days until May 20 to ensure that NPS addresses these problems before more cell tower approvals are issued. We've talked about this before, that, you know, we have our national parks, and these are kind of sanctuaries, right? Yeah. This is where wildlife yeah. are able to, to live without being threatened in any way. Um, for extinction, I mean, many of many of these parks harbor species that are that are at risk, right? They do indeed. This group, you know, this peer group, Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. This is a really good group. Mm-hmm. We have to get their executive director on the show sometime. Yeah, that would be great because they're just, you know, they're on it, and thank goodness that they are. Um, you know, they've got their eye on things that the public can't always see and. Uh, Yes, yeah, so they're yeah, so they're making it convenient and fun for humans to go to these national parks and be able to use their cell phones and to hang out and if they camp there so that they can watch TV and videos and do whatever they want to do instead of enjoying the peace and quiet and solitude of a national park refuge, right? And you know, yeah, Patty, it's humans, just Humans, people Trump, want people all. want to people want to go to a, a, a beautiful park and and communicate on Facebook. Okay, you know, well, take, I don't I don't get those humans. No, I don't either. Okay, okay, thanks. You're welcome. For most people, the phrase space race conjures up images of men and women in spacesuits strapping themselves into rockets to take off for faraway places. It has a tinge of romance to it, and for more than six decades it has captured the imagination of Americans and the American press in ways no other subject seems to do. But today, there's a quiet race going on that neither Americans or the American press seem to be aware of. It's the race to dominate space with the machinery of war. The goal of this race is to build and maintain an arsenal of weapons that would make the United States the unquestioned champion and ruler of space and the world. If that sounds like the stuff of a child's dream or science fiction, it's not. It's reality. And to learn more about this unbelievable effort being conducted right under our noses by the military, we turn to our friend Carl Grossman, professor of journalism at the State University of New York, prolific video producer and TV host, and author of The Wrong Stuff, The Space Program's Nuclear Threat to Our Planet, and a follow-up book, Weapons in Space. Patty and I spoke with Carl last week, and we asked him first how he became involved in this issue. Here's our interview with Carl Grossman. I kind of uh, bumped into it. I was reading a Department of Energy newsletter, basically, called uh, Energy Insider was its its name, and it spoke of two planned space shuttle launches in 1986, one shuttle being the Challenger, being launched with plutonium-fueled space probes on them, and they 
were to uh, send these space probes, uh, once they achieved orbit, out into, uh, into space. The one the Challenger was to uh, carry up on its next mission in May of 1986 was to uh, orbit the sun. I don't know why you needed a plutonium-powered <laughs> space probe to orbit the sun, but in any case, it was the plan. And uh, this is 1985. I filed with um, the Department of Energy, NASA, the various uh, national nuclear laboratories, which the article said were involved. And the article went on to talk about studies being done uh, reflecting what could occur if there'd be an accident on launch in the lower atmosphere, the upper atmosphere, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And my FOIA request asked for the, uh, the findings. I mean, here, talking about plutonium on a, uh, a space shot, and I had written a book a few years earlier, cover up what you're not supposed to know about nuclear power, and I, I knew well that plutonium has long been described as the most radioactive mm-hmm. uh, yeah. substance known. And I, I, I kind of didn't think much of it. Uh, I mean, I figured I'd get a response in, uh, under the FOIA in a couple of weeks, but I didn't. And uh, the weeks passed by and months came and went. And I, at one point they denied it because they said that technical issues were involved. <sighs> and at SUNY College at Westbury, where I teach journalism, I teach about the use of the Freedom of Information Act, and there's no exemption for technical issues. In sure. any case, yeah. finally in late 85, I received the documentation, and I was kind of hesitant to go with it because NASA and DOE claimed in the documents that the likelihood of a catastrophic shuttle accident was one in 100,000. And, uh, I mean, these are odds that would make a uh, disaster in which plutonium would be released extremely unlikely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was actually driving to work to SUNY O. Westbury to teach my investigative reporting class, uh, first class of the 1986 semester I hear on the car radio, that the Challenger blew up. I uh, st- stopped uh, at a P.C. Richards store, and I saw that, that horrible image on mm. uh, dozens of TVs. Greens of the Challenger uh, exploding, and what I was thinking was, what if it would be the next mission in May Mm. when it uh, was supposed to have pounds of plutonium on board uh, for this, this was called the Ulysses mission to the sun. I got on a payphone, there were no cell phones around then, called The Nation magazine. Uh, I've written for The Nation through the years. I said, you folks know that the next mission of the Challenger was to be a, a nuclear mission. Uh, they didn't. Uh, they asked me to put something together on it. I, I, I wrote a, a piece which was uh, titled The Lethal Shuttle. It appeared on the front mm. page of The Nation, and, and that was the beginning. That was uh, how many years ago now? Uh, 35 years ago, and I've been on this story, if you want to call it a story, uh, ever since. Wow, that was a, a, a near miss then, if that plutonium had been on the shuttle that blew up. That would have been a disaster like we've never seen before. Yeah, and, and uh, in fact, in the documents I obtained, and the, these were under Exemption 1 to FOIA, whited out, pages and pages of pages in terms of how many deaths would have resulted if the plutonium would have been vaporized as dust in an explosion and spread widely, uh, how much land would be left irradiated. Mm-hmm. Exemption 1 under FOIA, incidentally, is for uh, government can withhold information as a matter of national security. Security, Mm -hmm. right. I've argued ever since in talking about that cover-up, that as a matter of national insecurity, uh, (laughs) that information should have been uh, 
divulged. Meanwhile, in terms of the odds, the one in 100,000, it took just a couple of months before NASA and the Department of Energy changed the odds from one in 100,000 to one in 76, which mm. is uh, more quite, actually realistic because of 150 uh, space shuttle launches, uh, two met with disaster. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so that's kind of a scary figure. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. The, the odds of, of, of disaster occurring uh, with these space nuclear shots, we've launched about 30 space nuclear shots, and uh, three have uh, involved uh, accidents, uh, the worst being the SNAP 9A accident in 1964. This was a satellite. At that time, uh, the satellites were energized by the, these plutonium systems mm-hmm. that generate uh, electricity. They call radioisotope thermoelectric generators. And this, uh, this SNAP-9A system and the satellite it was on uh, didn't achieve orbit, came crashing down to Earth, disintegrated upon hitting the atmosphere, Plutonium was spread all over the planet. It was long tied to uh, a rise in lung cancer, uh, that SNAP-9A accident. Again, that three Mm. out of 30, the uh, Soviets, now Russia, they've done, as far as I can tell, 60 space uh, nuclear shots, and six have met with, uh, with accidents. In fact, my book, I have a book uh, that I wrote on all this called The Wrong Stuff, and it begins with the Russian Mars 96. Uh, It was a a space probe, uh, feared landing in Australia. Uh, The next day, and on that next day, uh, then-President Clinton was to visit Australia. Uh, In the end, it came down, uh, disintegrated in a fireball over Chile. Uh, you don't know when these things is like throwing a, a nuclear dart at a dartboard. So in any case, that, that, mm. that, that's, that's a 10% failure rate. In terms of launches themselves, one out of 100 space shots at launch uh, undergo major uh, malfunctions, usually by blowing up. So, for example, this Perseverance rover that was sent to Mars only recently, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, if you look at the environmental impact statement, it's online, uh, and they're more detailed now than uh, the kind of situation I met in 85. Uh, now, at least, uh, there are pretty detailed EISs, and uh, NASA sets the odds of the Perseverance mission undergoing a uh, release of plutonium. And that was a lot of plutonium on, on the Perseverance rover, uh, 10.6 pounds, at 1 in 960. I mean, those kind of mm. odds, if you knew you could, you could win the lottery, uh, and yet the odds were 1 at 960, you, you'd go to the yeah. nearest convenience store, I think, and buy a ticket. Meanwhile, you know, the big question is, not only are the odds such that accidents not only can, but will occur. I mean, this is not a sky-is-falling scenario. The sky has fallen with radioactive material in these U.S. and Soviet and Russian uh, Uh, space missions uh, through the years. But is it necessary? For example, after the Step 9A accident, uh, and again, Dr. John Goffman, University of California, PhD, an MD, involved in the Manhattan Project's isolation of plutonium, long connected it to to a spike in lung cancer, wherever the plutonium from the Snap 9A fell out, and it fell out all over the planet pounds of it. What NASA then began doing was, you pick up a book on solar power, it became, NASA becomes a pioneer in developing 
solar photovoltaic energy, uh, solar panels uh, mm -hmm. for space use and ultimately terrestrial uh, use. Uh, and then afterwards, all, all satellites were powered by solar panels, not these plutonium-fueled RTGs. Mm. I mean, mm. uh, the uh, International Space Station is powered by, by solar panels. And as to Perseverance, there was a succession of solar-powered Mars rovers, but uh, NASA decided we're going to use a, a nuclear-powered one, just, just uh, ignoring the potentials of, uh, of a disaster. And if they would be a disaster. In fact, the environmental impact statement for the Perseverance shot, uh, which was from Florida, let me just read some of the passage, if I can get it quick, uh, of, of what could occur if that plutonium uh, spread. We talk about potential human health consequences of a launch accident, releasing plutonium, contamination of natural vegetation, wetlands, agricultural land, temporary or longer-term relocation of residents around the uh, launch site, destruction or quarantine of agricultural products, including citrus crops. You wouldn't wow. be too happy with Florida oranges after that. Public health effects, medical care. I mean, uh, it's now acknowledged uh, in, in these government documents there are serious consequences that can, and uh, again in the past, have occurred because of the use of nuclear power in space. You know, I'm I'm learning about this really for the first time, and I'm sure that many of our listeners are too. This is uh, this is pretty tough stuff that you're talking about here, Carl. So how come this is not more of a of a yeah yeah more widely known, and how come the media isn't isn't talking about this? Yeah, it's well, it's it's a combination of factors. Uh, one involves uh, the space program being. Uh, in my book, The Wrong Stuff, actually, I, I quote an article in the Columbia Journalism Review by William Boot, the former editor. This is after the Challenger disaster. And he, he spoke about if the media had done their job of being the watchdog mm -hmm. of NASA, uh, maybe people have, uh, could have understood that uh, the consequences and uh, those who made decisions to launch on that very cold morning uh, where the rubber uh, just uh, became, and so forth. Uh, but he, uh, he, and I'm going to quote him, talks about uh, the, the journalists who cover space uh, believe that they're on a, again, I'm quoting him, that they're on a great cosmic quest along with NASA and would ask at press conferences, uh, when are we, again, <laughs> these are reporters, mm -hmm. most mm -hmm. reporters, going to launch so you have this, this great patriotic thing, uh, and the press isn't, I mean, uh, we're not supposed to be cheerleaders uh, on any subject uh, that has uh, filtered into, into the media. I mean, I, I kept wondering after I uh, wrote those uh, early pieces, like, why? Why use nukes in space? And, uh, well, like in all the president's men, Deep Throat says, uh, follow the money. This is what he tells Bob Woodward, uh, who's, who's, who's making a buck. And there was a little company called General Electric, hmm. which, which manufactured <laughs> the RTG, the 
radioisotope thermoelectric generators. Then you have the National Nuclear Laboratories, uh, uh, which, again, I copied my FOIA request to originally, uh, Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, and so They're looking for projects. They're looking for government money. And then, then what I bumped into, again, this is the 80s. This is the time of Star Wars, Ronald Reagan's Star Wars, that that was predicated on orbiting battle platforms and on the battle Jeez. platforms would be, and in the wrong stuff, I, I, I provide all kind of information on this. And in a second book called uh, Weapons in Space, the introduction by, and listeners know this fellow's name, Dr. Michio Kaku. Oh, yeah. I, I, I provide information about the architecture of Reagan Star Wars, uh, orbiting battle platforms with reactors on board, providing the energy of a high-velocity gun's particle beams, and laser weapons. And I also, and, uh, I, I quote General James Abramson, who was the commander of the so-called Strategic Defense Initiative at the time, Star Wars, saying at a conference, unless we have reactors in space, we're going to have to have a long extension cord down to Earth bringing up power because the, uh, the weaponry we want to field uh, requires uh, large amounts of, of energy and uh, the solution with nuclear power in space. So NASA, though set up in 1958 ostensibly as a civilian agency, uh, this is the year after Sputnik uh, was launched, it quickly found uh, out where the money is in, in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. yep. uh, that's the Pentagon. Yep. And it yep. began uh, doing, well, ma many of the, the shuttle missions were dual-purpose missions where seven colonels went up uh, on a shuttle and you never, had a, uh, a word, you never got a word from them about what they were up there for. And so in fact, the shuttle itself was a 50-50 civilian military uh, device. Uh, so uh, one of the reasons that NASA has wanted to use nukes in space is that the military has wanted to use uh, uh, nuclear in space through the years, goes way back, uh, and it wants to kind of keep in step, uh, be there doing dual purpose uh, mm -hmm. activities. Yeah. In, f in fact, only recently, uh, the National Academy of Sciences, um, Medicine and Engineering put out a report just a few months ago uh, advocating nuclear-powered rockets. And we're talking about nuclear propulsion, mm. not just mm. the generation of a few hundred Power. watts of, uh, sure. of electricity to yeah. provide for the instruments on board a, uh, a nuclear system, uh, but nuclear-powered rockets to go to Mars. And in this report, which is available online from the National Academies, uh, it advocates getting nuclear-powered rockets to Mars, carrying astronauts to Mars, and talks about synergies with the military in terms of its use of nuclear power in space. So the scheme of Star Wars of energizing weaponry in space with nuclear power is not gone in general. I mean, with this space force that was created under Trump and which Biden has decided to retain uh, with all kinds of other plans to use nuclear in space. For example, uh, NASA has been pushing nuclear-powered colonies on uh, the moon and Mars. There's been a number of major studies about how you can, you can energize a, a Mars colony or a, a moon colony uh, with solar power. Mm -hmm. uh, the yeah. issue of nukes in space is, uh, I find the, the lack of, I mean, why people don't know about this. And I've given presentations all over the place uh, 
not just in this country. I've, I've been overseas. Uh, I gave two briefings to members of the British Parliament on uh, nukes and weapons in space. Uh, Dr. Alexei Yablokov, who was uh, the environmental advisor to both Yeltsin and Gorbachev, uh, he was a, a very uh, big critic of the use by the Soviets and in Russia of use of nuclear in space. He invited me to, to Russia to speak. Uh, I've been to Russia seven times hmm. uh, talking about uh, their folly uh, in terms of, um, uh, of using nuclear in space. But in any case, I mean, here we are in 2021, and I bet you a few people listening to this, uh, to this broadcast, and I'm so glad you're doing this, know uh, know about this. Sure. You're listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest is professor of journalism and author Carl Grossman. Carl, I want to go back and just ask you about uh, the United States signed a treaty back in 1967 that was designed to uh, to kind of keep space as a, uh, you know, an international uh, thing that, uh, as many people think about space as a kind of a sacred territory, you know, we need to, to be very careful about what we do in space and be mindful of the fact that it belongs to everyone. Remind us a little bit about what that first uh, Outer Space Treaty said, and, and are we abiding by that treaty? Well, we're certainly not abiding by the intent, and if uh, this U.S. Space Force, this new sixth branch of U.S. Armed Forces develops, as I fear it, it will develop uh, with weaponry in space, uh, deja vu of Star Wars. Uh, we're, not, we're not abiding by the letter of law, the law in terms of the Outer Space Treaty. It was put together by the United States, the former Soviet Union, and the United Kingdom. Uh, it was enacted in 1967. It's been signed on to by most nations uh, on Earth. And what it did was set aside space as a global commons for peaceful purposes. Yeah. It, it, it prohibited weapons of mass destruction in space. Uh, Craig Eisenthroth, who was in fact uh, as a young State Department officer, and I've interviewed him in uh, Pick Up Weapons in Space or some of the TV documentaries I've done on, just, just Google them and, and you'll see uh, uh, Craig Eisenthroth, an attorney. Uh, speak about what they tried to do back then, which was to uh, prevent space from being weaponized before it was right. weaponized. Sure. Uh, the problem is, again, it just prohibited weapons of mass destruction, uh, but what about laser weapons and hypervelocity guns and particle beams? So there's been an effort now, it's been going on for a couple of decades, uh, to uh, expand the Outer Space Treaty of 67 with, which, what, with what is called the Paros Treaty, of, which is prevention of an arms race in outer space, Paros Treaty. And the leading country in pushing for the Paros Treaty has been our neighbor Canada. Hmm. And we certainly can't distrust our neighbor Canada, followed by Russia and China. And in my trips to Russia, they've made very clear, and I've been to China too, they made very clear that uh, they do not want to expend their national treasury on uh, deploying uh, weapons in space. And mm -hmm. It's like uh, mm. uh, purchasing a Bradley fighting vehicle. We're talking about billions of dollars. So they've, with Canada, have uh, tried now for decades through various administrations, U.S. administrations, to have the Paros Treaty enacted. And I've been at the U.N. and watched what's occurred. And nation after nation votes yes. And my country, the United States, votes no, effectively vetoing 
the Paros Treaty uh, at, at the UN. It's, it's just, again, the Outer Space Treaty was visionary and set aside space as a, uh, as a global commons for peaceful purposes. And just, just before I uh, just go on, let me note for people listening and say, well, what, what can we do? Uh, I think action is going to be necessary, has been necessary at the grassroots. And I would recommend folks connect with the global network against weapons and nuclear power in space. Uh, the, the website is space4peace.org. They sponsor protests. They hold conferences. It, it was put together in 1992, the global network. I, I was involved in helping it form. It was a meeting in Washington, D.C. It's based in, uh, in Maine. It uh, has a membership, from, again, all over the world. And from the grassroots, it's been trying to work for uh, keeping space for peace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So were you surprised when President Trump uh, announced the formation of, uh, of our Space Force back in 2019? Or did you see that as in the inevitable next step in, in the militarization of space by the United States? Well, uh, with Trump, you know, you... You never know it, what was behind it. It was such idiot time. In fact, he first advanced the notion of a space force as a joke. And he got a lot of laughs, so a few, uh, a few months later, he actually mm. formally proposed oh, it. So no, I, I wasn't surprised. Uh, he probably thought it was a gimmick of some sort he could write on. I have been kind of surprised and disappointed that President Biden has stuck with it, uh, though it was enacted uh, through, a, uh, through legislation which was uh, not overwhelmingly voted on by Republican members of the House and Senate. But most most Democratic representatives and senators also voted for the National Defense Authorization Act, which enabled the creation of a of a, of a space force. Let me just note too, uh, in, in terms of other interests here or other, the roots of this all, uh, beyond Star Wars, a lot of it has to do with what was called Operation Paperclip. After World War II, uh, the United States brought over a thousand former Nazi scientists, uh, including Werner von Braun, and uh, they, they, they were actually at the center of what became the U.S. space program, both civilian and military. Uh, von Braun, was, uh, his big project was the V-2 rocket, mm-hmm. V for vengeance, uh, and he and his fellow engineers and scientists ultimately uh, sent to the Redstone Army Arsenal in Alabama. Uh, and they developed the Redstone for the U.S. Army, the Redstone rocket, which was uh, actually uh, based on the V-2. And um, it was the first rocket capable of carrying a, a nuclear weapon. Uh, and then uh, there was uh, the guy who was in charge, the Nazi officer who was in charge of the whole uh, Nazi rocket program, Walter Dornberger. Uh, he, he became a consultant to the U.S. Air Force, and he put together a, uh, a program which, uh, which people should uh, hear. I'm reading not from my book, but from a, a very important book by uh, also a professor at the State University of New York. Uh, Arming the Heavens is the, uh, the name of the book, and listeners might want to get a copy of that. It, it was done a few years before my, my book, and um, in Arming of the Heavens, well, he, 
here's a passage from it. In 1947, as a consultant to the U.S. Air Force and advisor to the Department of Defense, Walter Dornberger, who again had been a major general, Walter Dornberger, projected a system of hundreds of nuclear-armed satellites, all orbiting at different altitudes and angles, each capable of re-entering the atmosphere on command from Earth to proceed to its target. Again, that's, that's from... Uh, Professor Jack Mano's book, Harming the Heavens. Then then we got Star Wars, and who knows what we're going to have along these lines next. Uh, Verna Brown, Brown Brown, meanwhile, uh, went from uh, working on the Redstone rocket to becoming associate director of NASA. Mm-hmm. So the roots of, mm-hmm. uh, of, of this program of not keeping space for peace but turning the heavens into a war zone actually begins uh, in regard to the United States programs way back with these Nazi scientists who uh, they should have been tried for crimes mm. against humanity. I mean, these the V-1 and the V-2 rockets, and they were aimed at civilian targets, just weapons of, of vengeance and mass murder. They should have been tried, Von Braun and all the rest of this bunch, for uh, crimes against humanity, not, be, not given... Uh, positions uh, here in the United States uh, uh, with... As, uh, right, as, as celebrated yeah. scientists. Yeah. And, yeah, wow. It, wow. Uh, it's, but but, but, but that, that's the roots of it all. And yeah. Again, Jack Mano's book covers it. Uh, my work covers it. And there, there's another uh, journalism done uh, on, uh, on Operation Paperclip. Hideous. Wow. I want to I turn now to uh, the current debate over these 5G satellites that are being put up by literally by the tens of thousands. Uh, are you concerned? Uh, one of the big concerns that I've heard raised by scientists is the, is the increasing danger of collisions because of the number of satellites we have up there and the fact that we don't always know what else is up there uh, and the fact that we've got satellites up there carrying plutonium and other who knows what else. Are you worried about that? Well, yeah, it, it's, uh, I've written articles in, in recent times. Folks can... Google and uh, read the articles, Nation of Change, Counterpunch, and other outlets. And, and I write, and I, here's one, I talk about uh, the deployment of 5G technology, despite what you uh, hear in these these TV commercials that uh, just bombard us these days about 5G, the wonders of 5G. Uh, this is a technology that presents huge health risks by blanketing the earth with radiation, resulting in cancer, other illnesses, encouraging satellite collisions. I mean, uh, Elon Musk and his SpaceX, they've been given a go-ahead uh, to launch tens of thousands of these satellites. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then further, there will be so many satellites that there will be collision between them, space debris, and uh, there will be so many launches, again, tens and tens of thousands of, uh, of launches, that there will uh, be a depletion of the ozone layer. And what I've looked into in regard to 5G is the military connection. Uh, and the, it's, there's a big military connection. And, well, one, one of the main reasons that the military is, is gung-ho for 5G is because it would provide for retargeting of the hypersonic missiles that the U.S. has been developing. Uh, these are missiles that fly at 3,600 miles per hour, so guiding them... Uh, to their trajectory uh, instantaneously uh, is is very important. And uh, again, uh, listeners could not just uh, listen to me, but uh, just just Google 
military 5G. For Here's an article. This is just this past December uh, in military and aerospace electronics. What 5G means to the military, it says. 5G will be far more than quick connect phone calls, uh, particularly for the U.S. military. The promise of 5G is for instance situational awareness anywhere on Earth. Smart hypersonic weapons with retargeting on the fly. I mean, these things move so quickly. I mean, these hypersonic weapons that uh, fly at five times the speed of sound. So if there's an effort to, uh, to alter their trajectory, it has to be done quickly, and 5G is seen as the way. Uh, here's Aviation Week, uh, which is like a major trade uh, publication and website. Military experts foresee that the 5G system will play an essential role for the use of hypersonic weapons. Missiles, including those bearing nuclear warheads, which travel at a speed superior to, uh, to Mach 5. In fact, uh, this particular article goes into uh, how this is last year. The Department of Defense announced a $600 million 5G experimentation uh, and testing program. I, I mean, uh, there are bases that now will be uh, 5G test sites. Hill Air Force Base in Utah, Marine Corps Logistics Base in Georgia, Naval Base San Diego, and so forth. And so, so, in understanding the and these are serious health and uh, mm-hmm. other dangers regarding uh, because of the radioactivity, because of the radiation of 5G. We have uh, this this military connection, and again, this this the nuclear connection. These hypersonic missiles are, are nuclear capable. So we've come full circle to this question of odds again. What are the odds when you're when you've got you know this many five G satellites floating around in space that are you know being used by the military, uh, and not only the odds of you know of collision, but the odds of something going wrong. I mean, we've got all kinds of hacking that goes on down here with with wireless technologies. What makes people think that the that, you know, that they're not going to be hacked in space. The history of humanity is full of horrible things. Uh, unfortunately, humanity most often only reacts after the horrible things occur. That's right. Uh, and uh, just as an example of, uh, of how accidents can and will happen, just a few days ago, this SpaceX rocket of Elon Musk exploded. This is in Texas, yeah. uh, scattering debris all over. A, it turns out to be a, a wildlife refuge. Uh, this is the fourth accident. We're talking about a rocket, the SpaceX, exploding. I mean, what are the odds? Essentially, now most of these SpaceX shots. This is this, this rocket that Elon Musk not only wants to uh, have astronauts uh, take on, uh, use to go to go to Mars. But also, and, and let me insert this, talking about crazy, Musk wants to, uh, you know, have human settlements on Mars. I mean, uh, instead of repairing the Earth, making this, this beautiful blue marble in space, uh, keeping it uh, livable, it's, it's, uh, we're on tenderhooks there, Musk wants to uh, uh, have humanity head off to, uh, to Mars. And, and then he has this other plan. Uh, for Mars. I mean, go to the SpaceX website and you'll see, well, just Google Nuke Mars t-shirts. Good Musk God. is selling a t-shirt. It's, it says Nuke Mars. You can buy it through the, the SpaceX. Because what, what Musk wants to do with Mars is to detonate 10,000 nuclear devices 
above both poles of Mars to make Mars somehow more Earth-like. I mean, this is his plan. And guess what kind of rocket would be carrying up his preferred weapon of choice? Hydrogen bombs? Like 10,000 hydrogen bombs. Okay, so, so so I don't understand this. I mean, so who who is Elon Musk, and why does he have this kind of power, and why do people believe him? Why does the government believe him? It's all about money. I don't, I, you know, who stops him? Well, I mean, it doesn't, NASA doesn't stop him. The weather people don't stop him. NOAA doesn't stop him. The, uh, the FAA doesn't stop him. I mean... Uh, and the, they don't stop the FCC either from from shooting up these 5G satellites uh, into space. One level in terms of the FCC and their allowance of this Starlink program, the sending up tens of thousands of satellites, just littering space uh, with, uh, with satellites beyond the, the regulatory capture of agencies like the FCC or uh, the agencies that, you know, look to... Uh, Oh, uh, these national nuclear laboratories looking to make money off crazy government projects uh, involving uh, a nuclear. What we also have, have seen, and actually it's occurred in the time that I've been on this issue, because NASA is quite the bumbling bureaucracy. I mean, I, I had no idea I'd get into this, because I remember seeing Neil Armstrong on the moon, and here he was an Eagle Scout I was an Eagle Scout. I had just done a book on CIA involvement in Central America, and I'd been down in Honduras and Nicaragua, and, and I figured, well, NASA's not like the CIA. Well, it turns out that it, too, is a bumbling, dopey, uh, and can be a very malevolent bureaucracy, and, and it has been, too, the, uh, the space gang that doesn't shoot straight. I mean, sending up uh, Challenger on the, the icy morning where those O-rings had become frigid because of... Uh, of the car. I mean, uh, even though warned by engineers, don't launch this morning. Still, uh, what's occurred is because of NASA's bumbling bureaucratic jerkiness, much of the space program has, U.S. space program has been privatized. So you have uh, Jeff Bezos involved, you have Elon Musk involved, and, and I don't want to knock uh, the, the Tesla car. That's a, I mean, that was a nice invention, a, a nice uh, way of locomotion. But to, to nuke Mars, to drop nuclear devices in the poles of Mars to make it more, more Earth-like is, 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 is just... But if I would send a Freedom of Information request to SpaceX, I would not even get as far as I finally did with NASA and the Department of mm -hmm. Energy. I mean, now in private hands, we are seeing, uh, we are seeing people who, who, are, who think that they can make a book out of developing space. I mean, there's a whole push now for mining the asteroids somehow, uh, about, uh, mining the moon, mining Mars, and so forth. Really, nobody's regulating this. Nobody is yeah. stopping this. I mean, how could the man have this vision of, of, of nuking Mars? It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really very, very nutty these days. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's really life-threatening as well. It's so interesting, Carl. You know, we started this conversation with, with you talking about your FOIA request. And, and, and now the point you've just made, I think, is so critical for people to understand. The movement of our space effort from the public into, the, into private hands removes all the transparency and all the accountability. So, mm. so, as you say, you can't file a FOIA request anymore 
because the, these are these are all private companies and they can guard their you know their trade secrets the way they want and we have no idea and no ability to find out what they're doing it's quite an astonishing transfer of of power if you will yeah well let me just note that in, in my book the wrong stuff which is a play on the, that the right stuff yeah right. yeah yep. uh, there, there's his on page 161 pete wharton he, he was formerly he was a colonel with the star wars program and he's addressing uh, a space summit in washington dc and he's talking about how are we going to get funding for a billion-dollar uh, space program. And he goes on here, he says, uh, the qualities that will drive, he's talking about uh, U.S. development, uh, in, are greed and fear. Fear that somebody else will beat us to the prize and the possibilities that riches could result. So uh, it's come down now to... Uh, Motive. To, to, to greed, follow the money. Yeah, yeah. this is money. And to fear that 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 we got to get up there uh, before the Chinese and the Russians. And with with this space force, that's been a real rationale that they're going to get up there, they're going to uh, and so forth. But again, I, I, I've been to these countries and on, on these issues, and, and they don't want to blow their treasury on, on mm-hmm. weaponizing space. But let me tell you, if we do, if this U.S. space force does what it seems to be heading to do, they're going to be up there, too. They they're to. going to be up there yeah. with, uh, with weaponry as well. The Outer Space Treaty, this visionary treaty of keeping space for peace, will be just, be just blown apart. And, and our children and their children, if we can get that far, will live on a planet above which will be heavens that will be heavily armed. And imagine, consider... A shooting war with a a weaponized, a militarized space. If there is a shooting war in space, it's going to be, there'll be so much debris falling down on Earth, including, incidentally, not too incidentally, radioactive debris. We're not going to get, be able to get up and out for millennia, if even then. I mean, when the shuttle was in operation, the, the space shuttle, NASA had to coordinate with the military, which has a surveillance program regarding debris in space to make sure it could it could avoid uh, that debris uh, the space shuttle has been many scares of it being hit by because this debris flies around at you know thousands of miles an hour mm-hmm. uh, and uh, if there's a shooting war in space well Edgar Mitchell who was a former astronaut at, at a rally in Florida uh, organized by the global network against weapons and nuclear power in space he spoke against the weaponization of space saying If there is a war involving space, it'll be the last one. You've been listening to Green Street on WBAI, and our guest this morning has been Carl Grossman, professor of journalism at the State University of New York, prolific video producer and TV host, and author of The Wrong Stuff, The Space Program's Nuclear Threat to Our Planet, and a follow-up book, Weapons in Space. We'll be posting this show on our website, greenstreetradio.com, along with several links to Carl's books and articles, and also to the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space, something I think we should all be supporting. 
A quick reminder, programs like this don't come along all the time, and stations like WBAI don't come easily either. We should all be thankful we have this amazing station in New York where we can hear people like Carl Grossman and understand what's really going on. If you haven't renewed your membership lately, or if you haven't even become a member of WBAI yet, please consider doing so today, right now. It only takes a few minutes. You'll feel good all day that you finally got it done. The new pledge number, in case you haven't heard it, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. We actually have a little jingle that Patty and I wrote to help you remember the number. I'm not going to sing it for you now. You're just going to have to wait until they play it in the rotation. Uh, or, of course, you can visit the uh, station website, wbai.org, and donate right there. Become a BAI buddy and give a little bit every month from your credit card. It's super easy. It's easy on your wallet. It's the best way to support this station. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Special thanks to our guest, Carl Grossman, to our engineer, Michael G. Haskins, to everyone else at WBAI who works so hard to keep this station on the air. And, of course, especially to you, our listeners, for your continuing financial support of this station. Keep those cards and letters and emails coming in. We love to hear from you. Uh, You can reach us through uh, the website, greenstreetradio.com. Patty and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Street. Until then, please be safe, be well, wear your mask. Take care.